0: Good evening, good evening, good evening, and welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Daring Dialogues. I am your host tonight, Shantae Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. It is Relationship Wednesday, and I am very thankful to continue to build relationships. Um, I've had since uh, yesterday evening... I have had several parents reach out to me, um, in particular regarding the broadcast we did on Monday night, Um, and so if you are interested in finding out more about what I do to serve students, you can email me at reachshantae, R-E-A-C-H, Shantae, S-H-A-N-T-A-E, at gmail.com. I think... We have some parents out there who are getting it, who are realizing um, that the schools are very limited in what they can actually offer your child on a regular basis. Obviously, because they're serving a larger population, um, but also because of um, the turbulence that's been happening about what's going to be allowed to be taught. um, And some schools even going to the place of beginning to now ban books of actual knowledge that your child needs to be a well-adjusted citizen in this world. Um, And so that's where I come in. I come in to assist your child. I come in to help you fill in some of those gaps. Um, I come in to deal with that social emotional learning part of your child. I come in with the executive function and organization and getting your child uh, organized for success in school along with um, private tutoring of subject matter. So, I cover a lot. I have been professionally trained to teach students who are neurodiverse. So, my teaching experience uh, includes students with ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, students who are on the autism spectrum. So, um, if you're looking for a professional who has the experience and the knowledge and the expertise to help your child, you can reach out to me and I will give you further information on um, what I offer and how we can set your child up for success. That being said, (laughs) we're going to continue in uh, the book. We're taking a break tonight from Why Smart People Hurt. We'll come back to that book and we'll be in chapter five the next time we read. But we're going to go back into... What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. Conversations on trauma, resilience, and healing. There has been lots and lots and lots of conversation lately around people's need to heal, right? People's need to not just rely on the spiritual tool of prayer, which is a wonderful tool, But there's also some other tools that are out here to help us, such as therapy, such as coaching, which I also do. I don't do therapy, but I do therapeutic coaching. Um, And so this book is about helping you to understand what is going on in your brain, what trauma is actually defined as, how can you rewire your brain even after you have experienced trauma, And how can you get yourself back to a fuller, um, healthier you, mind, body, spirit, okay? So Oprah is getting ready to share about her own show and what she was focusing on, on the Oprah Winfrey show when it was on and why. And they're going to be talking about how trauma shapes a personality and how trauma can be a dysregulator. So we're going to cover that and then I will open up um, the IG here for those of you who want to respond to tonight's reading. I will put a caveat that we are probably going to end a bit early because I do have another meeting to get to tonight, unfortunately, but we'll try to make space for conversation. So Oprah begins by saying, 217 episodes of the Oprah Winfrey show focused on sexual abuse and I saw a profound through line for most victims including myself. When you've been groomed to be compliant, confrontation in any form is uncomfortable because you were never taught that you have the right to say no. In fact, you were taught that you can't say no. The sense that you aren't deserving enough to set your own boundaries, has been stolen from you. Many people react by burying their feelings of no and becoming people pleasers. I fell in that category. For years, I would say yes to things I knew I really did not want to do or avoid a difficult conversation because I could not live with the discomfort of speaking up for myself. I've known other victims of trauma who sabotage situations until someone else says no for them meaning their relationship ends, a friendship becomes toxic, or they lose a job. This is what I hear you saying when you talk about people who poison their intimacy. But the extreme experiences we've talked about so far, uh, intimate assault or uh, intimate molestation, child abuse, war, aren't the only experiences that can cause trauma. The term can actually apply to a vast spectrum of life events. For me, There is no better example of this than the story of Chris and Daisy, who first appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show in an episode about children of divorce. At the time, Chris was seven years old. Daisy, his sister, was 11. Not only had they endured the trauma of their parents' divorce, but it had been several years since they'd had any contact with their mother. Chris was only four when he'd last seen her, and his longing was heartbreaking. He believed that if he could buy a ring for his mother with the money he'd saved, she would come back to him. That broke me wide open. Daisy's hurt, on the other hand, presented itself as anger. You're not supposed to have a boyfriend when you're married, she told me, referring to her mother. The woman who was supposed to love her unconditionally and be her greatest teacher had disappeared from her life. Daisy described it as unbearable. On the show, rabbi and family therapist Gary Newman told me that for most children, divorce is really like a death. He explained that children don't see their parents as separate people who came together. They only see one person, one parent unit within one family unit. So even if the divorce is what's best for the family overall, the children feel pieces of themselves being torn away. And if one parent is no longer available or suddenly introduces a new relationship to the dynamic before the child can develop trust, it impacts the areas of the brain involved in shaping their self-worth. The sense of self informs every relationship or decision we make as we move through life. And when children don't feel respected by the decisions of their parents, their beliefs about how they are valued are crushed. Chris and Daisy were the first children I'd ever heard speak such truth about the trauma of their parents breaking up. Some people believe that the younger the child, the easier a new relationship is to absorb. Chris and Daisy's story confirmed for me that this is not true. I know your research suggests the same. So explain from a neurological perspective what happens to a child's brain in that situation. Dr. Perry says, when a new relationship enters the picture, two things happen. First, the child, and this is true even of babies, begins asking internally, who is this person and what is this? Second, they feel the shift of their parents' attention away from them and onto this other person. So you can start to see how destabilizing this is, even without any hostile, aggressive, or abusive stuff going on. Meaning, even when the relationships are relatively healthy. Right. Even if it's a really nice, kind, respectful person entering the child's life, it takes a long time for the child to make sense of the shift and get back to a calm, regulated state. As we'll talk later, anything new will activate our stress response system. Our default response is to, to novelty is, uh-oh, what is this? And until the new thing is proven safe and positive, it will be categorized as a potential threat. For most people, the unknown is one of the major causes of feeling anxious or overwhelmed. And we covered that in one of our um, soul freedom sessions, Fear of the Unknown. And of course, it's worse if there is conflict in the relationship. Let's say a young boy is yelled at by his mother's new boyfriend. This experience is processed and stored in the cortex as a narrative. Who, what, when, where. Memory. On Monday, the boyfriend came to the house and yelled at me, but it's also stored deeper in the brain. When the boyfriend was yelling, the boy's stress response was activated. The key regulatory systems governed by the lower parts of his brain sped up his heart, increased his muscle tone, and sent signals to his body to prepare to fight or flight. Fear shuts down thinking and amps up feeling, and the boy was afraid. And as his brain is trying to make sense of the whole experience, it's also making a trauma memory. Later on, when this boy is exposed to a trigger or evocative cue that reminds his brain of that traumatic experience, his heart rate will go up, his body posture will change, the cocktail of hormones in his body will shift. The point is that our body's core regulatory systems can be altered by traumatic experiences. A child exposed to unpredictable or extreme stress will become what we call dysregulated. And living in a traumatizing environment causes the child to be continually dysregulated. Yes, For instance, if a child sees repeated verbal or emotional or physical abuse of their parent or experiences abuse directly from a parent's partner, their brain makes connections between all the attributes of the abuser and the threat. These associations can influence how the child experiences and interprets relationships as they grow up. And that forms what you call personal catalog or the code book. That shapes the lens through which we perceive the world. Absolutely. These early life associations are incredibly powerful and pervasive. Once I was working as a consultant to a residential treatment center where there were about 100 boys, roughly 7 to 17 years old. All of these children were state kids or wards of the state following removal from their family due to abuse or neglect. After struggling in foster care, these boys had been placed in this residential program. They lived in a dorm-like setting and most of them attended an on-site school. One boy I worked with was a 14-year-old named Samuel. When he was seven, Child Protective Services had moved him and his four younger siblings from their home. They had all been neglected and Samuel had been caring for and protecting the others. When his father drank, Sam was the target of his most violent outbursts. When the children were removed, the younger ones went to a separate foster home. Sam was distraught. He kept running away from foster homes in order to find them. He'd been in 12 foster homes and 12 schools before being placed in the residential setting at age 11. One of the first things we did was reconnect him with his siblings, setting up weekly calls and monthly visits. Knowing they were safe and loved settled him. Only then could the hard work of healing really start. For the next three years, Sam made great progress. His social skills improved. He was developing better self-control when frustrated or disappointed. He became more hopeful and focused on the future. Though the chaos in his life had left him three grades behind in school, he was catching up to the point where he was moved up to a new classroom. Sam's new teacher was energetic, well-liked, experienced, and male. During the first week in the new classroom, Sam had three major outbursts. Two of them directed at the teacher were so aggressive and violent that Sam had to be physically restrained. This was an extreme intervention for this program and highly unusual behavior for Sam. Unfortunately, it kept happening. The staff was confused and frustrated. Sam was sullen and ashamed. I sat down with the teacher to review each event, and neither he nor I could see any obvious trigger for the explosive outbursts. I observed Sam's classroom and saw no inappropriate or potentially evocative behavior by the teacher. Yet Sam was clearly agitated any time the teacher talked with him or tried to give him any help with his work. Proximity was the only possible trigger I saw. The closer the teacher was, the worse his agitation. Over time, the teacher began avoiding any interaction. No eye contact, no verbal encouragement, no smiling. He was disengaging emotionally as well as physically. It was clear these two didn't like each other. One day when I was talking with Sam about this, his only explanation was, He hates me. Nothing I do is right. Our session was interrupted by a staff member who reminded Sam that it was almost time for his visit with his father. These visits had to be supervised, and the caseworker had not arrived, so I volunteered to go with him. We went to a conference room, and as I sat in the corner waiting for Sam's father to show up, Sam sat at the conference room table stacking checkers, waiting. His father was late again. Finally, the door opened, and the father came in and sat down across from Sam. They exchanged awkward greetings and set up to play checkers. For the next 10 minutes, maybe 10 words were exchanged as they played. Neither looked at each other and the tension was palpable. My mind drifted as they played. I found myself thinking about my own father. Fishing trips, his waking me up from a warm slumber, his putting on red check flannel hunting shirt, his scent, his special mix of cigar sweat and Old Spice. Such a warm and reassuring scent. I was swept up with an intense feeling of being safe and loved. As I surfaced from my daydream, the smell of Old Spice still hung in the room. Could it be? I walked over to the table and bent down between Sam and his father. How's the game going? The father said, he's winning. I could smell alcohol on his breath and the Old Spice he'd slathered on to hide it. He was supposed to come to see Sam sober. After the visit ended, I went to see the teacher. He was in his classroom preparing for the next day. This may seem a bit strange, I said, but what kind of deodorant do you use? Old Spice. Why? I took out a paper and pencil and drew the upside down triangle model of the brain. We talked for a minute or two about memory associations and triggers. I told him that I thought the scent of Old Spice was an evocative cue for Sam, just like the one of Mr. Roseman's cue was the explosive sounds. The teacher agreed to change to a scentless deodorant. Later that afternoon, I asked Sam to sit down with me, and I explained to him what I thought was making him so uncomfortable and angry with the teacher. I showed Sam the same triangle drawing, and we talked about how our brain makes sense of the world by connecting sight and sound and smells that co-occur. He nodded. It made sense to him. He gave me other examples of things he knew that pushed his buttons. When someone yelled, he wanted to run and hide. When a bigger person was bullying a smaller person, he wanted to attack. I asked if he would be willing to sit down with the teacher and see if we could have a redo on the relationship. Both Sam and the teacher agreed to give each other another chance. Over the next year, their relationship grew strong and Sam ended up being a model student in that classroom. Sam's story illustrates so much about how the brain stores memory. Both Sam and I had experiences earlier in life where our brains made memories connect to the smell of Old Spice. My associations elicited positive feelings, but his elicited distress and fear. As we make our way through the world, countless sounds, smells, and images can tap into memories we created earlier in life. These memories may be full-blown recollections of a specific event, or they may be fragments, a feeling, a sense of deja vu, an impression. When we meet someone, we form a first impression. Frequently, no apparent information on which to base it. This is because attributes of the person evoke in us something we previously categorized as familiar and positive. The opposite can happen. If some attribute taps into a previous negative experience, our brains catalog vast amounts of input from our family, our community, and our culture, along with what is presented to us in the media. As we make sense of what's stored, it begins to form a worldview. If we later meet someone with characteristics unlike what we've cataloged, our default response to them is to be wary, defensive, defensive. In turn, if our brains are filled with associations based upon media-driven bias about ideal types of body or racial and cultural stereotypes, for example, we will exhibit implicit bias and maybe sometimes even overt ones. So many phenomena of everyday life are directly linked to this process of the brain making sense of the world by creating associations and making memories. This is why asking what happened to you is so important in understanding what's going on with you now. So anybody out here have any particular sights or sounds or scents that you associate with something negative and you are aware of it? Anybody out here have some sights and sounds and scents that you associate with something positive and you're aware with it? I think I discussed this before, but uh, peanut butter and jelly, though I don't eat it anymore, I associate it with a positive feeling. Coffee, I still drink. I've been drinking coffee since I was four and it is associated with maternal love and care for me. That's something that I know and I'm aware of. Um, so this particular reading was all about how we connect our, our senses and how we make sense of that and how we interact with other people in the world. Um, for some people, things like bracelets, the sounds of things jingling, that can trigger a response for them. For some people, it can be... Like I have up here, I have lots of lights. It can be too much light to actually trigger or the opposite being in the dark. Right? A lot of people are afraid to be alone in the dark. A lot of people are afraid to go to sleep in complete darkness. I used to have that um, issue when I was a young person. Now, because I dealt with the connection of where that fear was coming from. Now I'm like, close everything, (laughs) close all the blinds, get it as dark as possible in here so I can go to sleep. Uh, So if you want to come in tonight and you want to uh, share in the conversation, if you are on IG, you know what to do, hit the camera and we will bring you on for some conversation tonight. We've got about a good 20 or so minutes. Um, So if you want to talk tonight, Feel free to hit the camera, and I will bring you on. Let's see if we have any takers. All right, I see Lady Barbara down here, and good evening to those of you all who are coming in. We have just finished reading from "What Happened to You." And we are talking tonight about sensory triggers and trauma. Good evening, Lady Barbara.
1: Good evening, Pastor Shante. As I was reading, I was thinking about that. And a few weeks ago, I was talking to my best friend. And we were talking about carnation milk. And mm. I was telling her that come into care because her mother still likes it and she don't like that she drink it. Mm -hmm. But I said, well, back in the 1950s, we didn't get fresh delivered milk like other people. Mm -hmm. But I was telling her, the way that my father would make it, Mm -hmm. it tastes good the way that he would fix it. And it always reminded me of a milkshake. So when I see carnation milk, Mm -hmm. it always, because it was like, the most pleasant time that I can remember hmm. with my father. And also, the other thing was Kellogg's cornflakes, which <laughs> I don't eat anymore either. But that's all he bought us. So when wow. I was the Kellogg's cornflakes, I always thought of my daddy. Now, that's, it, that's
0: interesting <laughs> that you say that because my, yeah. my memory of Kellogg's cornflakes is associated with trauma in my life. we used used to eat Kellogg's cornflakes when I was a little kid and I remember like all of us had a bowl of of cornflakes and I started choking on a Kellogg's cornflake and no one at the table realized I was choking at the time until my older brother looked up and realized I was choking and he ran from around the table and did the Heimlich maneuver on me and saved my life so, to this day, I don't eat any, like, sharp cereal like that. Because, you know, Kellogg's is very, like, the corners are very edgy. So, like, I stick with circular-shaped cereal. Like, I'll do Cheerios. If I eat some cereal, I'll do Kix. But you cannot get me to eat no Raisin Bran, no Kellogg's Corn, like, none of that. And so, Yeah. And see, that's again, that goes back to what he was saying. Like you can have two people with the same item and they can have a totally different connection of experience with it.
1: Exactly. Wow. Did you just think about that and then people like the young boy or the two children and that divorce and the young boy, if the (laughs) mother, they don't understand the new relationship or not even see, so I could relate to the the two kids, cause when you that's abandonment, mm-hmm. and I could relate to that being abandoned, you know, and being with a father who didn't know how to handle that either. So you can reflect back. Sometimes you can hear things or even see things and hear people say certain things. And the other last week Friday. I I, ran, I got to see someone I hadn't seen in a, young, a long time. And I had a relationship with her when she was a high schooler. And mm-hmm. we always used to encourage her in the Lord. She's going on in the Lord. She's married now. She has two children. Yeah. And we had a conversation about her five-year-old where someone wanted to force her to interact with someone, and I was sharing with her mm. the book about everyday narcissism mm-hmm. and how you set this child up to say well, you can't say no, right. and so she had a battle with a family member because she refused to force her daughter mm-hmm. to. To comply, right. and they and she said it broke out into a big thing that they didn't understand. So I was sharing that book with her. Yeah. So I said, thank God Pastor Shonjay introduced <laughs> us to that book yeah. because she was trying to make the person, and she's an educator, mm-hmm. and she's still going to school to further to get her degree. So she works with children. So mm-hmm. she was. Oh, she said, I cannot. I will not right. make her do you know comply if she does she said i don't feel like doing that but then we family and she so that's a a mindset that i'm so glad that i learned because growing up when i grew up you had to be a yes person you did you could not tell an adult no
0: let me just say in about let's 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 be honest in about 98 percent of black households that is still that is still the modus of operandi that yes, that children don't have in don't have an autonomy of mind and thought uh-huh. and what we don't understand is we are setting them up to not be able to tell people no in the future yes because if you're forcing your child to do something with an adult that they don't feel comfortable doing, you are programming them that my bodily autonomy does not matter or it's not important. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And and again, when we know better, we do better. But that's yeah. one of those things that we say culturally has been passed down, but it actually is a is a remnant from enslavement.
1: It is. Because we had no right. We couldn't say
0: no. Right. We had to be in compliance. We couldn't so, say yeah. no and we had to comply. And mm-hmm. our ancestors taught their children how to comply. Yes. Okay, we're in 2021 I mean, now. You you can. you can you can teach your children that it's okay to say no to an adult who is, who is doing some harm people. to you.
1: And, yeah. And, and so... You don't. They don't. You don't think in terms of that they had that right, and they they know what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable to them. But if you forcing it on them, you can't say. You must say. You, you have to say yes, even though your heart is saying no. So I, I thank God that she's. You know, she has. He's he's nine, and she's five. But mm-hmm. she's teaching them that they had the right to say no. So yeah. it was like a great conversation that we spent a lot of time together, but it was just to see a young person that you remember is now a wife, a mother, she's a boy, she's born again. And just, you know, just a young couple that's really, really, you know, striving for the things of the Lord and for the betterment of their family.
0: Yeah, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about, A child's autonomy, right? We know that at a certain age, a child is not gonna understand. uh, Don't jump out in front of the road, or a truck is gonna run you over. We're not talking about stuff like that. We're talking about their bodily autonomy. When somebody, when when you when you are dealing with an adult, and something they're doing is making you uncomfortable. Uh huh. It feels like a a violation of space. Maybe you don't have the words to express how you're feeling, but it's okay for you to come to your parent and say, mommy, daddy, I don't feel comfortable with this adult. They're they're saying things to me that makes me uncomfortable saying yes to them. Like it doesn't hurt you as an adult, to have your child have a have that conversation with you to say, What is going on? Why do yes. you feel this way? What has yes. this person said or done that's making you feel uncomfortable mm-hmm. about them asking to to enter your bodily space
1: Thanks. yes
0: but mm-hmm. but many times that conversation doesn't happen. there's a lack of patience there. it's you know do what I say and yes. and snap to it and and do it immediately. And so sometimes we miss those cues. Yes. That something else may be going on. Yes. And we don't we want to get to the place where we're not missing cues from children.
1: Amen. That's so true.
0: Yeah. There's been a couple of there's been a couple of cases like that. Um When I was working with um, children zero to three, there were a couple cases like that where it was a a three-year-old that was having issues with her older brother. And the only way we found out that the older brother was touching her inappropriately was because I stopped and asked her questions when they were both in my vicinity and i noticed how adamant she was about her own brother not touching her uh-huh so i had to i had to go a little bit further and break down the questions right for somebody that young to say what is it that he's doing that's bothering you and i was able to alert the parent the parent was able to handle what was happening because obviously both of them were were underage he was like only three or four years older than her but he but it was caught Uh and addressed and dealt with so you know my thing is we can't dismiss when children are trying to share something with us we can't always label it as oh they're just being defiant Uh and just push it away So that's my, that's, you know, what I have seen is when you see that level of resistance to physical touch or you see that level, a high level of resistance to a specific person and it's repeated over and over again that whenever this person comes around, your child hides and runs away and starts crying and, you know, wraps their arm around your leg for protection or, or stands mm-hmm. behind you. Yes. You need to pay attention to that. Sure. It's not just, oh, they're just. They are like you. Right. Yeah. There's usually yeah. something else connected to that. Mm-hmm. So we got to um, give space for children mm-hmm. to communicate with us.
1: Yes. That's
0: good. We have to. We have to give space for children to communicate with us. And it doesn't matter how young they are. They need to be listened to. They need to be listened to. So I always say children are little people. They're they're little people. And they're going to grow up one day to be big people who will be able to fully express what they were feeling or what they were going through. But if we do more listening as they are little people perhaps we will have less trauma being endured. And we know yes. that, you know, we see a lot of stuff happening now and people are like, what happened with this child? What went wrong? You know, et cetera. Trauma. trauma. A, lot of, a lot of it is trauma and not being listened to. It's true. And out of that trauma, that unresolved trauma and not being listened to, now we got what we have in our country. Yes, sure. So, uh-huh. yeah, it starts, it starts somewhere. Final thoughts, Lady Barbara?
1: Thank you. I just always enjoy, and thank you so much for the time that you take every day. is greatly appreciated. So thank you for sharing. I always say thank you, and I sincerely mean thank you for sharing. Because, like, last Friday, I had an opportunity to introduce her to the book. That you had introduced us to, and 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 her dealing with her child saying no, and somebody wanting her to be her to force her to comply. So yeah. I thank you for that because I was able to share that.
0: And I want to say this as we close: um, as a parent, you can also experience what I call parent peer pressure. <sighs> to where you feel pressured by other parents to respond in a certain way to your child. And so uh-huh. my thing is don't give into, don't give into the peer pressure that happens through parents. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's yeah. your child. Yeah. They came from you do what is best for your child's wellness. Yes. Because people love to say, "Well, if it was my child," <laughs> and, and it's usually for and it's usually in the case of something that, that is abusive. Yes. If it was my child, I would be bopping upside the ha- head, or uh-huh. if it was my child, they would be doing X, Y, and Z. Uh-uh. Well, you're teaching your child that any adult can have authority over them. Yeah, it's true you're not delineating you're just saying if it's an adult they have the control they uh-huh. have the right you have uh-huh. no say so so when they encounter an abusive adult you've already groomed them for that abusive adult's control in their life exactly when they encounter an abusive boyfriend uh-huh. I don't want to we don't have time to get into that tonight but the rates of teenage
1: and abusive relationships.
0: Abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. It starts with, I don't have, I've already been conditioned that I don't have control over my body. Mm -hmm. The people who are in my house are abusive. Mm -hmm. And they said they love me and they're abusive. Yes. So now I have somebody I really care about outside of my immediate family and, they're, and abusive.
1: they're abusive. So that means I'm supposed to tolerate that abuse because I've learned that in You've
0: the learned home. it in the home. You've learned it in the home. So if we want to success, uh, you know, set our family members up, we want to set our children up for success. We have to start at the beginning. We got to start at the root. And a part of starting at the root is allowing children to be heard.
1: Exactly. And that's the truth.
0: You got to allow them to be heard. Um, I know some people are probably going to disagree with that, but that's okay. Um, But if you look at the statistics of what's happening around trauma and abuse and you start just digging and going back into it, it starts with, I was not allowed to be heard. Uh I was not allowed to voice my opinion. I was not allowed to say no. Uh You're going to find that that's the root in a lot of abusive cases. I didn't know how to get out of it because I didn't know how to say no. No, I didn't Uh know how to voice that. What was happening to me was not okay because my voice had been taken away way before I got into that first abusive relationship.
1: Shit, that's true. Mm.
0: So, on that note, this has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host tonight, Shantae Charles. If you have a child, if you are dealing with your own set of trauma, I encourage you to get this book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. yes, you can heal your trauma; it is yes. possible. Um, this book is written by Dr. Bruce D. Perry, whose work is in—he's um, ne- uh, a neurologist, and his work is on brain and the tra- and trauma, along with Oprah Winfrey. Remember, everyone, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So, I encourage you to continue to go out and be what, Lady Barbara? Be light. Be light. Thank you, everyone, for your time and attention tonight. We'll be back tomorrow with Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and we'll be looking at James Cone's work as well as Robert P. Jones. Take care and God bless. Good night. Good night.